0: Good morning, everyone. Is this loud enough? Is that good? Cool. Thanks, Evan, for the uh, the kind introduction. Um, he took my introduction, right? I was going to say that I'm a, a deacon here. Um, this is my second time getting to, uh, to preach, so I must not have done a terrible job the first time, which is good. And it's definitely not an easy task, right? Preparing for this, it takes... Uh, it takes diligence, and it takes discipline to prepare. So um, I definitely appreciate what Pastor does um, week after week. So our text for this morning is going to be from Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. So Second Peter is, is a letter that Peter's writing to a, to a group of churches in Asia Minor, and he's teaching that um, God, through the grace of God, through Jesus that's able to transform the Christian. So the letter that he's writing, um, it really empowers the Christians in Asia Minor to live righteously, even when there's opposition. And if you would go on and read the rest of, of the letter, uh, the rest of the chapters, you'll see that Peter's addressing the fact that there's a bunch of false teachers who have come in and they're trying to lure people away from the true gospel. They're inserting heresy in lieu of truth. They're denying Christ rather than exalting him. They're twisting and, and bending the scriptures instead of really trying to understand what they really mean and, and really trying to live out the commands and to seek a better understanding of them. And lastly, they were seeking to make people question their faith and to question their salvation. And that wasn't an uncommon then. It's off. Yeah, that's off. That. So that wasn't uncommon then, and it's definitely not uncommon uncommon now for, for that to happen, right? If you would encounter someone out in the world today, they might try to make you question your faith. So they might try to make you question your faith, and they may, might make you try to question the, the truth of, of the Bible, um, 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us that the unregenerate, they do not like the gospel message, right? It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So last summer, um, Dan Riccardo and I were down at uh, the Keyport waterfront doing evangelism one Thursday night, and we engaged in some really good conversation with uh, this Muslim man named Khalid. And we presented the gospel to him. Uh, we showed him his sin using the Ten Commandments. We showed him what the cure for his sin sickness was and his need for Christ. And he pushed back, and he pushed back hard. Right? He started proclaiming his truth to us and how Jesus was not the way to eternal life. Um, he portrayed that he had a knowledge of the Bible, and he was able to quote the Bible. Um, and he tried to use his knowledge to, to sway us. But his understanding of the scriptures turned out to be a, a, miss, a giant misunderstanding of the Bible. He bent the scriptures, and he twisted them. He took things out of context uh, significantly, and he tried to make us question um, the gospel that we were preaching to him. We probably talked to him for close to an hour, and several times during that conversation, he would say things like, Are you sure about that? Or how can you be certain? Um, attempting to make us question our salvation and question the truth of the Bible. And Khalid, he's not unlike so many other people in the world, right? They're going to fight to make you question your faith and fight to make you question your salvation. So what do we do? How do we handle situations or encounters like this? So let's look at what Peter has to say. Um, if you have your Bible, open to 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 11, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes, which I would encourage you to, on the uh, the back of your bulletin, there's an outline. Um, and don't just take notes today, right? Do that every Sunday. It's uh, It's really good to to jot the important things down and to study it when you go home. So the main point, which um, I want to state, as you can see based on the sermon title, Sure of Your Salvation. So the main point is that we can be sure of our salvation because it's a work of God and it's dependent on Him and Him alone. So if you look at point one, we're going to see that um, we have this gift. It's a great gift, and it's salvation, and it's... Um, only there through the power of god right so it's really important to understand the source of of where that power comes from that peter's speaking of like it's definitely not from within us if you're a believer you are um, spiritually sufficient but that's not because you're able to dig down deep inside you and and muster up up this power to to be such no it's it's the power of, of god it's the power of jesus that was freely gifted to you so it's a it's a gift through grace now, Peter's the author of this letter, and he was an apostle of Jesus, and he was called along with um, 11 others to, to be in that, that group who were eyewitnesses to everything that Jesus done. Um, they saw firsthand the power of Christ manifest itself in, in different ways. And Peter was, uh, Peter was unique from the other 12, right? He was in the inner circle with Jesus. So he got to see a lot of things that the others um, probably didn't get to see. And if you go through the Gospels, you'll see story after story and account after account of all these miracles and healings that have happened, and the only explanation for those things happening is through the power of God, right? If you think about the feeding of thousands and thousands and thousands with just a few fish and, and a couple loaves of bread. Um, he was able to make the, the lame walk, um, the blind sea, turning water into wine, and then Jesus you know, walking on water is amazing. And Peter himself, he got to walk on water himself, amazingly enough, um, through that same power, and he did so for about one or two steps before he started doubting himself and, and being scared. So Peter got to see a lot, of, uh, a lot of the power firsthand, and we can see it too by reading our Bibles. So preachers, when they're doing sermon prep and they're delivering a sermon, they're supposed to come up with some really good illustrations to, to get a point across. And I thought, how can I do that for the power of God? What would be an effective illustration to, to portray that power? And the more I thought about it, and, and the longer I thought, I realized that it's really hard to come up with something that could portray that power. So I'm just going to let the power speak for itself. So, When you think of the power of God that we have and that Peter's speaking of, it's the same power that God used to create the universe and everything in it just by speaking and doing it in six days. It's the same power that was able to send 10 wicked plagues to to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians to to free the Israelites. It's the same power that he used to, to part the Red Sea like it was nothing. And it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that's the same power that allows us to do works that please him and glorify him, and that definitely cannot come from us. So if you go to the next point of your outline, if you look at God's provision, so what does the power that Peter speaks of in verse 3, what does that do for us? What does it provide? And this is huge, right? It says, it grants us everything pertaining to life and godliness, so from the moment you're saved, the instant you're born again, you possess, you possess everything needed for life and godliness. No matter how ugly your past was, no matter what your failures are, no matter what your shortcomings are, it's yours now. You don't need anything on top of it, and you can't add anything on top of it. The word is there. It says everything. That leaves no room for anything else. So we lack nothing needed to live a life of godliness So is that going to be easy? Is living a godly life easy? No, right? Of course not. Can we live a perfect life? No. Like, of course not. At least not on this side of eternity. And we slip, we fall, we sin, we fall short of his glory every single day because we haven't been perfected yet. We still have our flesh. We still have these fleshly wants and these desires. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 10.13, the text tells us that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So he's empowering us to persevere until the end. He's, allow, uh, he's empowering us to persevere through trials, through temptations, through sin. And Matthew 24 13 says, The one who endures will be saved. So God is a God who provides. He always has and he always will. And part of the way that he provides for us is through knowledge, as the text says. Right? Knowledge is something that's, that's really important. Most of us will have or we will go through at least 12 years of school, sometimes more if you go to college. Um, so everyone wants more knowledge, right? Knowledge to get a better job, knowledge to allow you to care for your family better. Knowledge is something that Peter recognizes being important. He mentioned it about 15 times in one Uh, in one form or another in this short epistle. But I would say that knowledge alone or knowledge by itself is not important, but the subject of which you have the knowledge is what really matters. And Peter tells us what we need to be knowledgeable about and what the benefit of having that knowledge is. So it's only through knowledge of God that we require those things, everything needed for life and godliness. And the knowledge Peter speaks of, it's not superficial. It's not just knowing the facts. It's not just knowing there is a God or knowing that uh, there was a resurrection or knowing that Jesus was a real historical person, right? Even Satan and the demons believe and know about the resurrection and know about Jesus. But Satan certainly hasn't received everything needed for life and godliness. Knowledge is, is deeper than that. It's putting your faith in God. It involves being obedient and subservient to him. Even when it's not easy, and even when you think you know better than him, which you never do, um, knowledge equates to a relationship. It's about loving others the way that he loves others. It's a, it's a total transformation of your life. You don't truly know Christ until you repent and put your faith in him. And once you do that, your life is radically changed forever. You're a new person, um, he gives you new wants. He gives you new desires. The things that you used to find joy and pleasure in, they might be appalling to you now. You're a new creation, and with that come some, um, some pretty great promises, which we're going to talk about. So if you look at the next part of the verse and the next bullet point, um, according to God's promise, um, the text says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, So, that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So, what are the promises that Peter's talking here? Um, So, there's a bunch that we're going to go through, but the primary one and the most important one is, um, is salvation. So, we just learned that salvation is a gift, salvation is also a promise. And Peter is writing to Christians who were under attack from false teachers. So these Christians, they, they were doubting their salvation, and Peter comes in to tell them exactly what they needed to hear. So he tells them a little bit more about the promise. So take note of these three things about the, the promises of God or, or the, the great promise of salvation. So first, it's not ordinary. It's not average, right? It's extraordinary. It's magnificent. It's something precious. It's something to be valued. Um, it's something to be excited over and to look forward to. Second, it's, it's not something that's in the future. It's, it's something that they have right now. And third, it's not dependent on them earning it, right? It's because of Christ, and it's because of what he did on the cross. It's because of the glory and excellence of God. And if you know anything about the glory and excellence of God, you know how great and unmatched it is. So if you look at um, Exodus 33, um, we read, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So if God is this glorious and this powerful and radiant to the point that Moses could just see a tiny glimpse of him from the back after he'd already passed by. If God is, is that glorious, how great does the promise have to be that comes from him, right? It has to be really grand. So I think that's assurance for us that we have this great promise Um, And it's dependent on, it's not dependent on the glory or excellence of me. It's not dependent on the glory or excellence of of you or anyone. It's only dependent on the glory and excellence of God. And there's more good news. So if you go back to verse 3, the word us, right, that applies here too. So these promises that Peter is speaking of, they belong to us. Right to all who have been born again. It's not just for the the people who are in the churches of Asia Minor. It's for us at First Baptist Church of Madawan. It's for all believers of all time. And the Bible's loaded with other promises, right? So we have the the great promise of salvation, but the Old Testament and New Testament, we see promises of all sorts of things. Um, Spiritual life, resurrection, the Holy Spirit, grace, joy, promises of strength and guidance and wisdom, promises of help, and promises of heaven. And all these promises that um, we're told about, um, they're given to us so um, we can become partakers, as Peter tells us, that is to share in the divine nature. So each of the promises that I mentioned, they help us grow in virtue. They help us grow and transform us into the image and likeness of, of Jesus. And if we want to be more like Jesus, we have to be less like the world. They're polar opposites. So the world's corrupt. The world is filled with sinful desires and lustful hearts and uh, sinful passions. And we can't partake in the divine nature while also partaking in the corruption of of fallen mankind. We need to use the knowledge that we have and we need to use the, the reality of the wonderful promises that we're told about from God to flee from sin and to flee from the consequences of sin. So a couple months ago, um, the NFL draft occurred, and this is the the biggest night in the lives of, uh, of these young men who are waiting to find out what their future is going to be, right? They've worked, I don't know, 20 years. 15, 20 years, like, for this moment to um, find out if they're going to be drafted and make it into the NFL. So they're sitting in this room, or they could be sitting at home, just waiting anxiously for the the commissioner to walk up to a podium and and to call their name. There's a a local guy from Jersey a couple miles south on Route 34 from Oakhurst. His name is Kenny Pickett. He played quarterback at the University of uh, Pittsburgh, And he was hopeful that he was going to be one of those 259 players um, who had their name called this year. And he did. He was uh, the first quarterback selected in the first round, and um, he went to play, or he was drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers. And he was chosen because of what he did in his collegiate career, right? Because of all the stats he put up, because of the great talent that he has, because of his skills. And it was exciting to see his reaction and the reaction of his family and his friends when he made it, right? People screaming, hugs flying around, kisses, tears of joy, like, you name it. They were, like, super excited. And rightly so, like, his dream had come true. All his work paid off, but, like, that's not the end of it. Like, this is just the start of it. He made it to the team, but now he has work to do. He has a lot of studying ahead of him, right? He's got to study the playbook. He needs to know like the back of his hand, not just what he's doing. He's got to know where his receivers are going. He needs to know where his blockers are. He needs to be able to read the defense to see what kind of schemes they're running. Um, He needs to figure out where's the best place to throw the ball, considering how the defense is lined up. Um, A lot of of stuff is going to be going through his mind, and he needs to be prepared. If he wants to do well and succeed, he needs to have an intimate knowledge of his playbook, intimate knowledge of his teammates, and an intimate knowledge of the rules of the game. So we're kind of like Kenny, all of us, right? We want to be drafted or chosen by God, right? No one wants eternity in hell, right? Everyone wants heaven. And everyone wants to be part of that 259 who make it. But there's a big difference between how Kenny was drafted and how we make it. So Kenny worked hard to make it to the NFL. Right, He put in countless hours of practice. He put in countless hours of the weight room and, and strength and conditioning training to get bigger and stronger and faster and more powerful. Like He worked his tail off, and he earned the right to be drafted. He was chosen because the Steelers saw something in him that made them want him on the team. But the way we're chosen by God or the way that we're drafted, it's completely different, right? God didn't look down at us and see anything good in us. We didn't do any good works or good deeds that made us worthy of spending eternity um, in heaven with him. We didn't spend countless hours of, of being righteous. No, on the contrary, we spend countless hours of being unrighteous. From the moment of our birth, the Bible tells us that we, are, uh, we have a sin nature. We're rebels against God. We're enemies of him, but he still chose us anyway, so we're kind of like the kid who couldn't even come to the games to watch because he got expelled from school from being a, a vile rule breaker, let alone being the starting quarterback on the field. So we don't deserve to be there, but we are, and, and we can be there because of the grace of God. And now that we've been chosen, and now that you've been drafted, if you've put in your faith in Christ, like that's not the end of it. There's work ahead of us. As believers and disciples of Jesus, we need to have an intimate knowledge of Christ. We need to have an intimate knowledge of your playbook, right? We need to know what it says. We need to know how to interpret it correctly. We need to know how to use it to guide our daily life. We need to know what it says about how we interact with each other. How do we interact with people in the church? How do we interact with people outside of the church? And there's a couple ways that we can do that, right? The first thing is through constant intake of the word. You're not going to know what it says unless you read what it says, right? You need to study it. You need to meditate on it. You need to pray to God to have him reveal the the truth of the scripture to you. Um, Prayer, coming to church on Sunday mornings, coming to Sunday school, discipling and teaching your kids the gospel, like all these things are are super important. Another application is to be an evangelist, right? We need to have enough love for other people to tell them the truth of the gospel. Sure, God's sovereign and God is going to save his elect no matter what. Um, so why do we even bother, right? Why should we evangelize? Well, I'm glad you asked. So first, because Jesus told us to in Matthew 28, right? We need to make disciples of all nations. Second, because it's our privilege to share the gospel and it brings glory to God when we do so. And thirdly, because it's the means by which God brings people to him. People are only saved by the gospel. There's no other way to be saved. And the only way someone's going to hear the gospel is if someone tells it to them. So go and tell someone the gospel. Today, tomorrow, every day. And if you think back to Kenny, right, he has a promise. Um, and his promise is, is in the form of a contract with, with the Steelers, Right? He has to hold up his end of the bargain. He's going to play hard. He's going to practice hard. He's not going to get into trouble. If he does that, the Steelers are going to uphold their end of the bargain, and they're going to pay him a ton of money to do so. When we're chosen by God, there's a promise for us too, but it's not a two-way contract, right? It's, it's one way. God keeping his promise is not dependent on you and me keeping up our end of that contract. If we did, the moment we signed it, it would be null and void, um, terminated, So God's promises for us, they're rooted in his faithfulness and they're rooted in his goodness. And our natural response to that should be one of joy and it should be one of thanksgiving. Our response should be um, also sorrow. We should be sorrowful over our sin. And our response should be to flee the corruption of the world and run to the righteousness of God. We should strive to live a life that's pleasing to God and that takes you to the next point. Which is um, virtuous living. So, Peter gave his readers some really good news about the gift of salvation, right? And about the richness of of God's promises in the first four verses of this chapter. Their salvation was secure, they needed assurance of it, and they needed confidence that they were saved. So, Peter's going to tell them some things here in verses five through seven that will help them have that assurance. He says for this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue virtue with knowledge knowledge with self-control self-control with steadfastness steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly love So when he says for this very reason so he's basically saying because I've given you everything needed for life and godliness because you have these precious great and magnificent promises that should elicit a, a certain type of response from us. It should be a response for diligently living for Christ. Right? They didn't need to earn their salvation, and they don't need to work to keep their salvation, but they do need to live their salvation out. They do need to bear fruit, and this is how they can do it. First, he makes it clear that there is some effort on our part. Right? The Bible is not opposed to effort with regards to your salvation. Once you're saved, you should make an effort to, to grow in sanctification. The Bible is opposed to earning your salvation. So this is the effort that Peter's talking about. The Bible's not opposed to effort. We can't live a passive Christian life, right? If I want to know what the Bible says, I can't just keep it here next to me. I can't just open it and not look at it. Look at it. I can't put it under my pillow at night and sleep on it and hope it just Uh, seeps into my brain through osmosis. No, you actually have to read it. Man, if you want to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church, it just doesn't happen, right? It takes action. It takes love. It takes sacrifice. And the same is true here. Peter is saying to these Christians that you need to work, and you need to work hard. And he says to make every effort into things he is about to go through. So what what do we put this effort into? So faith is the starting point of everything here in the text, and um, faith is something that's given to us. We don't work for faith. It's a gift. It's faith in God and God alone. But once you have that faith, the text says that you should supplement your faith with certain things. So supplement is to to bring something else in or to add something on top of or um, supply besides. So what do we want to supplement our faith with? So the first thing is virtue. So virtue is a quality that kind of sets you apart from other people. It's being excellent in your conduct. So we need to be excellent in our conduct, in our actions, in our thoughts, and in our words. We need to supplement this virtue with knowledge. So knowing God's will about um, will for your life, knowing the divine truths that are laid out in the Bible having the knowledge to be able to teach and train others about what it says, knowledge to properly understand the truths and how to apply them. And then with that knowledge, you want to supplement that with self-control, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul gives us in Galatians 5. And that literally, mean, literally means to hold yourself in. We need to control the passions of the flesh. We can't be controlled by them. Next up is steadfastness. So this speaks to to being patient or having endurance, especially through trials. There's a Scottish theologian named William Barclay, and he describes steadfastness this way. He says, It is the voluntary and daily suffering of hard and difficult things for the sake of honor and usefulness. So my question is, does that describe you, and should it? Yes, it should. So then you should supplement that steadfastness with godliness um, or a a sincere reverence for God. And this is doable only because he's already given us everything needed for life and godliness. And then lastly, we need to supplement that godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly, brotherly affection with love. So he just told us to have the virtue of godliness and reverence for God. And now he transitions into, you know, how should we interact with others here with us now, right? This reminds me of Matthew 22, when Jesus is talking to one of the lawyers who wants to know what the greatest commandment is. He says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, uh, that's a great summary of the first four commandments. And then loving your neighbor as yourself is a summary of commandments 5 through 10. It's, uh, it's really, really hard um, It's actually impossible to separate the love of God from the love of each other, right? You can't have brotherly affection for someone if we don't love them. You can't claim to love God fully if you're not loving those around you. So to those who don't know, um, Evan was going to call me a drug dealer in my introduction. Um, (laughs) I'm a legal drug dealer. I'm a pharmacist. And pharmacists are responsible for checking a prescription for all sorts of things, right? So we analyze every component of the prescription. We need to check to make sure the drug is appropriate for the patient based off of the condition they have, based off of their age or other health conditions, their allergies. There's so many things that go into that we have to check. Um, and after we do that drug utilization review process, if everything looks good, then we dispense the prescription to the patient so they can begin their journey of, of getting better, right? Getting their blood pressure under control, getting their diabetes under control, uh, killing that bacteria that's causing an infection. Whatever it is, whatever their chief complaint is, um, we want to help them uh, meet the goal. So Peter gives us a prescription here that we just went through. So everyone put on your, your white coat for a minute, and you're going to play pharmacist, and you're going to analyze all the components of the prescription that he laid out here. So faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. So to me, those things, they all check out. Everything is correct. All the elements are right. It's an appropriate therapy that's appropriate for Peter's audience. And it's an appropriate therapy for every single one here. We all need this prescription. We all need to take this every single day. And we don't pick and choose which virtues. Yeah, I want to be godly, but that brotherly love or that brotherly affection, no, that's not for me, right? It's not pick and choose. It's, it's everything. We need all of them because we're battling our flesh every single day, which sometimes can lead to doubt. It can lead to uncertainty. So we need to eliminate that uncertainty and that doubt. We need to kill the flesh. We need to nourish our faith with something that's beneficial and something that's useful for us. And we can pursue sanctification by working hard to pursue these virtues. So two reasons for Peter writing these things down. First, to give his readers an assurance of their salvation. Right? If you possess these virtues that he just went through, you're going to have confidence in your salvation. We need to supplement our faith with these virtues, not to maintain our salvation, because that's something only God can do, but to maintain the assurance of our salvation. And second, we should live out these virtues as a response to God's mercy and grace towards us, right? We're not saved by works, but we do good works and we do these things because he has saved us, because it brings him honor and glory when we're sanctified. So you need to live out your faith, not just confess it. And that brings us to the third point, which is the reward. And the reward is... um, Confidence. So in verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, There will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Peter gives us two options here, and each option has its own consequence. The the first one is to pursue the virtues, to make them yours, to have them abound, to have them increase in your life, and to do this daily. And if you do this, it tells you you're not going to be ineffective, you're not going to be unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. You will be spiritually rich, and you will be productive. The alternative is someone who professes faith, but they're not pursuing these virtues, right? They're not working to have them increase. In this situation, Peter says that you're nearsighted and essentially blind. So what are you blind from, right? You're blind from seeing that your old self that has been killed, you're blind from seeing that. You're blind from seeing that you're a new creation. You're unable to see that God and and his loving kindness is just downpouring on you. You're only able to see yourself. You're blind and unable to recall that the sins that once ruled your life, the sins that once owned you, the sins that you were once enslaved to, they've been washed away, and you are clean from those things. Um, You've lost assurance and confidence in your salvation because you don't see the fruit. So we're called to confirm our election diligently. We're called to make it certain, to be confident in it, And how do we get that confidence boost, right? So it's by practicing those virtues in verses five through seven, right? Those things need to be a a pattern of, of daily conduct in your life. If you do this, you're not gonna fall. You won't stumble into doubt. You won't stumble back into your old ways of living and your old lifestyle. Living a life, you'll be living a life where you're pursuing holiness and godliness and moral virtue instead. And you'll be able to see the reward that awaits for you. And as these virtues are increasing in your life, and we see that you'll be able to see that you're becoming more and more like Jesus. So your condition of of being blind at one point, totally cured, you now have 20-20 vision again. You'll be able to see clearly that God is abundantly and lavishly providing for you. So he's saying that assurance in this life and riches in heaven are waiting for you, and they're the benefits of your diligence and of your fruitfulness. So if you think back to Kenny, right, that we talked about in the beginning, he puts all that work in to make it to the NFL, and he's there. So the Steelers, they're going to provide him everything needed to make sure he succeeds. Great coaches, great equipment, film, um, you name it. They're going to give him every single tool he needs to make sure that he succeeds. And if he works hard and he utilizes those tools and he practices, when he gets to his first game... He's going to go out there, he's going to march down the field, touchdown. Next drive, march down the field, touchdown. Play after play, drive after drive, um, he's going to have success because of that hard work that he put in and the tools he was given. He's going to be confident that, all right, like I made it here and I deserve to be here. So, on the contrary, if he has all those tools, they give him everything he needs, but he doesn't work at it, right? He doesn't practice hard, he skips practice. Saturday night, he goes out to the club, he gets, uh, he gets drunk, he gets home late, he doesn't sleep well, he's late to the stadium, he's going to go out there, and he's going he's gonna to bomb it, right? He's going to throw interceptions, he's going to make penalties, he's going to forget the plays, and it's just going to be a really bad outcome. So what do you think's going to happen to him, right? He's going to lose his confidence. He's like, oh, I don't deserve to be here, right? I don't even deserve to be in the stands watching, like, uh, I'm doing something wrong, So we need to be like the first Kenny, right? We have everything needed, but now we need to work and live out our faith. If we want to get stronger in our faith, to have a better understanding of the scriptures, if we want to wear that new jersey um, to show what team we're on now, um, we need to act a certain way. If you are a Christian, uh, truly born again, you will bear fruit. And when you bear fruit, that's what gives you the assurance of your salvation. So if, if you are a Christian and do you lack assurance of your faith, um, if you don't right now, at some point you probably have. At some point you may doubt it and you're not alone. If you go to Google, you can look up how to know that I am saved or how can I be sure that I am saved. And it's going to give you dozens and dozens of, of links to answers to that question. And those links and websites are only there because people wonder. Don't go to Google to find out if you're saved, though, right? (laughs) So, um, the Bible, much better. So, the point is that people wonder. And um, the believers in Peter's time doubted their salvation. Believers today doubt their salvation. So, what do we do, right? So, why why do you doubt your salvation? So, one, maybe there's a sin in your life that just keeps popping back up. Makes you think, man, if I was really saved would I be, like, really struggling with this sin? Two, maybe you don't see fruit in your life. It makes you think, man, if, if I was saved, I would be a different person. I would act more like that guy over there if I was really saved. Or maybe you still feel guilt over some sin from the past, from some sin that you committed 5, 10, 15 years ago, and those feelings are, are dragging you down. And there could be countless other reasons why you might be doubting your salvation. So what's the solution? So first, you need to recount the faithfulness and the goodness of God, right? You need to recount that God doesn't break his promises. And we talked about how great and precious the promises of God are. And if you're a believer, those promises are yours through faith in Christ. We tend to focus on reasons within ourselves as to to why I may not be saved. Instead of focusing on you, like focus on, on Jesus. Focus on what he did on the cross, Focus on him living a perfect life and dying for your sin. Focus on the resurrection and how he conquered death and how he conquered sin. And focus on the promise of his return. Then start to work out your faith. Live diligently. Live out those virtues that we studied in verse 5 through 7. And be intentional about bearing fruit as a response to God's love for you. And use this fruit to give you the confidence that you're saved. And if you're an unbeliever, you may doubt that you even need to be saved. You might think that you're a pretty good person. You think that you're way better than the guy who lives next to me. And you might be, but the guy who lives next to you, he's not the standard. God is the standard. And the Bible tells us that there is a day coming when God will judge each and every person. God sees everything big, everything small, anything that you ever done said thought and he's going to pull out his law and he's going to determine if you violated it or not you're going to be on the stand you're going to be in the hot seat of god's courtroom and he's going to be persecuting you and if you've ever lied if you've stolen something if you've murdered if you've committed adultery if you've coveted something that wasn't yours have you done that your defense might be like, well, I told like a white lie here and there, but uh, they don't really count as lies. I've never murdered anyone and I've never cheated on my wife, but you know, God doesn't care what color your lie is, right? A lie is a lie. Never murdered anyone, that's great, but have you ever hated someone or, or not loved them purely in your heart? Ever cheated on your spouse? That's good. You shouldn't. But have you ever lusted after another man or another woman? Have you ever had uh, impure thoughts about them? Had sex before marriage? Looked at pornography? That's called adultery of the heart. And God looks beyond our actions. He looks to the heart. He looks to the thought life. He looks to our words. And you are guilty like the rest of us. And God told us what the sentence is that we deserve for our sin, right? The wages of sin is death. So spending eternity in hell in constant torment separated from him, whether you sinned once or whether your sins are too many to count. But what's the good news, right? The good news is that you don't have to receive that punishment. God sent Jesus to the world. He lived a perfect, a sinless life and he died on the cross taking the punishment for sin, Right? taking the punishment for your sin and for my sin so that you could be forgiven, so that you can be washed clean. So your sin debt that was once weighing heavy on your shoulders and your back, completely erased. So when God looks on you on that day, when you're in his courtroom, in that hot seat, he's gonna see the righteousness of Jesus. He's not going to see your sin. You can be declared not guilty and you can have entrance into eternal life in heaven with him. So what do you do, right? All you have to do is repent of your sin. So this is turning away from your sin. This is giving them up, forsaking them, putting your sin to death, and putting your faith in Christ for salvation. Trusting that his death alone is sufficient for your salvation, right? There's nothing you can do on top of it. There's nothing that you can add to the work of Christ. His death on the cross is sufficient. And if you do this... All the promises that we talked about, all the promises of Christ are yours, and in that moment, you will be given everything needed for life and godliness, and you can live a life that is pleasing in God's eyes and can be sure of your salvation. So let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the um, richness of your truth and your goodness and your mercy and your love and the magnificent and wonderful promises that... You laid out for us. God, I pray that um, my words were effective this morning. I pray that you would use them to work in the hearts of both believers and unbelievers. God, I pray that you would sanctify everyone who's already put their faith in Christ, that you would use this sermon to uh, encourage each of us to uh, practice the virtues listed. I pray that you would use us to encourage each other to to be more virtuous and to be more godly and um, aid each other in sanctification. And I pray that for any who aren't believers, um, I pray that they might see the wonderful promises available to them, that the forgiveness of sin is available through your shed blood. And in his name we pray, amen.